Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. This episode is sponsored by PumaPay. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Welcome back to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, our weekly show about Ethereum and Ethereum 2.0 development, hosted by yours truly, Christine Kim and Ben Edgington. Fun fact, Ben, today is the 20th episode of Mapping Out ETH 2. That's wonderful. Congratulations. I have been with you on the journey for only about two thirds of those, but it's been, uh, it's been great to, to be with you and I enjoy putting this together. Great team. I do miss Will. We should get him back sometime, give him a hard time about Bitcoin mining. That'll be fun, but it's a good, great occasion. Yeah, this show has definitely come through, gone through many show hosts and formats in the run that we've had, but we're still planning on evolving this series in bigger and better ways in the many episodes that I expect we're still yet to record. So for everyone who's listening to the show and has stuck with us since day one, please give us your constant feedback on how you like our show, our topics, and any questions that you might want answered from either of us on Ethereum. Our contacts are in today's show notes. And I will say as a note about future episodes, for our audience members who've given us questions on layer two technology, on competitor blockchains like Polkadot and Solana, uh, questions about ETH trading, I want you guys to know that we will be dedicating full episodes and special guests to those topics in the weeks to come this summer. So book off some of your schedule on Thursdays and be sure to tune in always. <laughs> but speaking of summer, Ben, do you have any fun summer plans this year? Sounds like I'm going to be doing my homework on Solana and Polkadot and ETH trading. <laughs> but seriously, no big plans. It's still difficult to do things in the UK. A lot of uncertainty around kind of unlocking the lockdown still. So difficult to make any plans for traveling. So I shall be sticking around at home, try and get on top of the garden. It's going crazy at the moment. The garden? You have a garden? Yeah, just a little garden. Yeah, it's quite a lot of work just hacking things down. Summer, we've had a few days of summer and the garden has decided to grow like mad. That's awesome. That sounds actually like a very good thing to do in the summer, getting some fresh air and being able to be outside without being in constant contact with people, <laughs> given the <laughs> current state of continued concern over coronavirus. But anyways, yeah. So Christine, do you have any plans for some yourself? Well, very similar to you. A lot of things that I'm going to be doing are at home, continuing the quarantine hobbies. I'm not in quarantine right now in, in Vancouver, Canada. We get to go outside and stuff, but I'm still being as cautious as I can. So this summer, I'll probably continue my solo hobbies like cooking and <laughs> learning new recipes and uh, practicing the guitar, things that are more independent, but I'll have more time for now that it, it's summer and the company and what I do starts to take a little bit more of a lull instead of the craziness that's been the last <laughs> few months. It's always crazy around here. Good, good. Shall we uh, kick off the tech segment? Are you ready? So, Christine, I thought we should probably talk about your little disagreement with the good folk of Avalanche Protocol, which I spotted on Twitter last week. Do you want to kind of summarize how you see things? 
Well, well, clearly nothing doesn't catch the eye, you, Ben, <laughs> and everyone at my at Coindesk. Yes, I've been hearing a lot about this, and I've tried my best to be as diplomatic and professional as possible on Twitter, which is very difficult to do when all you want to do is just like drop a couple swear words in there. Basically, it started with a tweet that I had made about how Ethereum 2.0 had received the highest percentage increase, monthly increase in deposits, in validator deposits. So on Ethereum 2.0, in order for you to become a validator, you need to deposit 32 ETH into a smart contract on Ethereum. The month over month increase from April to May was one of the biggest that the network had mm. ever seen. And given that, I think Ethereum 2.0 has now over 160,000 active validators operating on the network. And so sharing those figures, sharing those metrics got the Avalanche community extremely riled up. And the reason why is because the way that they understand the term validators is a node, basically a computer or a machine that is running the software of the network, connecting to the network and helping produce blocks. On Ethereum, just because you run a validator doesn't mean that you are running the same number of computers or nodes, basically. You can run multiple validators on one node, on one machine. But in order for you to run a single validator, any number uh, beyond one, you do need to have a machine. You do mm. need to have a node. Uh, but basically, that was the biggest area of contention. The kinds of comments I was getting was, Christine, you're misleading and intentionally misrepresenting the growth <laughs> of the Ethereum network. You don't know what you're doing. This is damaging to this, that, and the other because you're using the word validator wrong. And to that, I obviously got very riled and said, no, I'm not using this term wrong. There's no universal definition for validator mm. in the crypto world, let alone among proof of stake blockchains and so on and so forth. Did mm. I convince a lot of people? No. <laughs> Did um, I spend way too much time thinking about responses to these questions? Yes. Yes. The Avalanche guys got a bit rude, I'm afraid. Sorry about that. It's an interesting conversation, though, moving on to the sort of technical dimension of it. I mean, if we kind of dig below the sort of use of words thing, we're really talking about decentralization. I think this is why they get a bit, it's a bit hot button for them. So the root of it is one node with 10 validators, as we term them in ETH2, equivalent to 10 nodes with one validator each. So in order to stake, you need to run a beacon node and you have one or more validators attached to that node each validator managing your, your 32 ETH stake. And yeah, I was reflecting on this, thinking about this. It took me back to an article Vitalik wrote a, a while back about the different kinds of decentralization. You've got architectural decentralization, you've got political, which is about how many independent human beings are involved. Um, and you've got um, logical decentralization, which we don't do in Ethereum. It's a logically unified system. And so I was sort of thinking about it. And in one sense, you can be very strict about it and say, the only thing that matters is the number of beacon nodes on the network, because each validator basically gets its information from a beacon node. So from architectural point of view, the beacon node is a single point of failure. Having 10 beacon nodes with one validator each is 10 times more resilient than having one beacon node with 10 validators. So from that, that point of view, it's better to have one per node. 
but what if your 10 nodes are all hosted on AWS and AWS goes down? I mean, it's the same, right? So in a sense, you don't really learn it by that comparison. Now I was thinking about the kind of political decentralization. So I could be running 10 nodes with one validator each, but it's still one person behind all of them. So in that sense, they are politically centralized. Whereas my one node with 10 validators could have 10 different people's stake on it. Now they can't act independently, except they could, if they didn't like the way the beacon node was behaving, the operator of the node, they could move their stake elsewhere. So in that sense, that's more decentralized. So what I'm saying is it's not black and white. There's there are sort of a lot of shades of gray here. And it's kind of, I think, unhelpful to frame it as sort of black and white validators is unhelpful language and uh, and this so i thought that was interesting but yeah i mean i think the ethereum protocol engineers owe you an apology validators is not the right terminology and we are looking at changing it because they don't really validate anything they just make votes for what they see so it's not actually a very accurate term so for completely different reasons for what you're talking about we are thinking of changing the terminology but, <laughs> so that might put an end to this yeah, I mean, I think that the conversation, the broader conversation around is Ethereum 2.0 centralized or not, and what are the forces of centralization acting on the network is a conversation that definitely needs to be had. Mm. I think the way that I was responding on Twitter was not, you know, this is a conversation around around centralization and Ethereum 2.0 is more a conversation around your use of the term validator is is wrong and incorrect, which I mean, from what you're telling me is wrong. <laughs> well, it's not kind of not your fault because that's the, the terminology that we've adopted in, in ETH2. And uh, that's what everybody calls these 32 ETH stakes at the moment is a validator. To that extent, you are accurate. That is our terminology, but it's probably not the most helpful terminology for us to be using. So we, we may change it at some point, but it might be a bit late now. Going back to the topic of nodes and whether or not one validator on one node is better than 10 validators on a single node. On Ethereum, there is websites, public websites, like ETH nodes that tries and estimates the number of nodes that are on the network. Mm. And I couldn't actually find something similar for the Ethereum 2.0 network. When I was doing my research on that, I was told that a tracker for how many ETH 2.0 nodes are being run, how many beacon chain nodes are being run. That's something that's in the works. Hopefully that will be put out, but tell me a little bit about why that's being held up or why that's not quite possible right now. I don't think it's fundamentally really hard. It's just that people haven't particularly put the work in. There's Barcelona Supercomputer Center, Leo and his team there put together a very nice crawler for the network that can gather information from the nodes just takes time because you've got to discover all the nodes that are out there and you need to connect to them and ask them what sort of software they're running. And it's part of the protocol that the node should tell you that it's running Teku or it's running Prism or Lighthouse or whatever. So in principle, it, it's not that hard. It just has to be done and put into a dashboard and made automatic and hosted by somebody and, and so on. But you learn one dimension of the network. You, you learn the number of nodes of different types, but you don't learn how many validators each node is hosting. The Avalanche people would say that second bit of information is irrelevant. It's just not interesting at all. But I, I think the discussion is more nuanced than that. And actually, big nodes are, are quite interesting in, in their own right. We await with interest to see this on a dashboard somewhere. Right, right. I think it would be definitely helpful uh, to try and find a comparison, a way to 
compare different proof of stake blockchains, especially as Ethereum, which is Ethereum transitions to a proof of stake into the proof of stake realm, because the terminology itself doesn't quite transfer over. Saying one network is more decentralized than the other because of the number of validators doesn't quite work because validators, again, as we've talked about, has very different meanings um, Mm. across these networks. And so talking about the number of nodes, that's something that I think could Mm. be more comparable. Talking about hardware requirements, so how much bandwidth running a particular node Mm. require, those are things that will be easily comparable. And when it comes to the kind of rah-rah, like maximalism for a particular blockchain over Mm -hmm. another that does usually spark these kinds of commentary, I think those are kind of the metrics that many will have to go back to when we're talking about comparisons. Of course, when we're talking about a particular proof of stake network, there are certain terminologies that's just unavoidable. Like, I don't know what else I could call the 32 stake ether mm. other than a validator. There's just no other way to way yeah. to describe it. Uh, and decentralization is hard. And we, we have to remember that decentralization isn't actually the end goal. It's just a means to an end. And the end is permissionlessness, it's robustness, it's censorship resistance. Those are the outcomes we're looking for. And actually crude measures of decentralization are not necessarily helpful in knowing if we've delivered on those goals or not. So we need to keep our eye on the ball on this one. Right, right. Afraid of missing out on the latest crypto opportunities? Well, then it's time to head on over to pumapay.io. PumaPay's first liquidity pool is now live on PancakeSwap. Deposit liquidity today and claim your share of a 750 million PMA token reward. Hurry now. Visit pumapay.io today. That's pumapay.io. One other question that I want to bring up that came through the Twitter thread, but that I thought was kind of interesting, was made by one of the co-founders of Solana. He tweeted the ETH2 stake deposit metric. So right now we're not even talking about validators, but the ETH2 stake deposit metric is BS because if it increased by 100 times, the security or censorship resistance of the network wouldn't change. The minimum set of entities that add up to 33% on ETH 2.0 is four. That's the set of signers that can break liveness and safety. So I wanted to bring that up with you because I wanted to know, is 33% really the minimum set of kind of like a 51% attack, you only need 33% of stake to overcome the network. I mean, it's obviously true that a handful, like four entities do control more than 33% of stake on the network. Mm. Um, yeah, you could stall the network with 33%. And by stall, I mean, it wouldn't finalize. It would still be usable, but it right. wouldn't finalize. Uh, in order to actually do anything like validate two or finalize two conflicting blocks at the same height, which is a fork in the network, you would need 66%. You need two thirds of the network. So an entity with a third of the network can cause some trouble, but can't do anything very evil. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I guess, as you've said in previous episodes, if there is a single entity or two or three, Mm. it's easier to blacklist them than it would be on a proof of work. Right. Uh, That would be an extreme point of view. But if somebody acted in a hostile manner towards the network, then, you know, we know where their stake is. You know, we know the address that they're staking from the validator. And that validator can be forked off the protocol or, you know, that set of validators that are demonstrably malicious. But that requires a a super majority of the rest of the network to agree to do that or or to go off in its own fork. In fact, a subset of the network to go off on its own fork. Not something I ever want to see. And 
yeah, we we're trying to work hard on on decentralizing the protocol as much as we can. It's it's hard. There are forces in all directions. I think we'll do better than we did on proof of work, but you know this will play out over over years. Right, right. A conversation that we'll continue to have. And I hope that for a, a new episode or a, a summer episode, we'll have one of the other proof of stake blockchain representatives mm. here to talk more about the way that their proof of stake networks works and, and their comparative strengths. One last thing, and then I want to move on to the markets segment for the show. When you say that validators don't validate anything, I mean, <laughs> they're the particular, they're the only stakeholders of the network that is able to propose blocks. The only, the Basically, the people that the stakeholders that are mm. going to be receiving transaction fees, they're going to be receiving the rewards for ordering transactions, basically doing the job of a miner. How can you say that they don't validate anything? So in the current uh, just proof of stake beacon chain, blocks have to be valid by definition. So the beacon nodes won't accept a block which is not built correctly. So if it has the wrong number, wrong amount of information or incorrect fields in it, the beacon node just won't accept it. So the validators don't actually do that check. The beacon nodes do that check. The validators are involved in the coming to consensus on what happened on the network. So they only vote for what they see. They say, yep, I've seen that block. Here's my vote. Yep, I've seen that block. Here's my vote. And the extent to which they validate only that they've seen uh, the block. So it's not really validating at all. We should call them attesters or something like that. Gotcha. And will that change with the merge or not so much? Uh, I think not. Some other duties come to validators. So it kind of changes. They've got to say that they have seen the contents of blocks, not just voting that, you know, a block exists, which is all around data availability. But we, yeah, that's kind of getting into a deep rabbit hole. So we can do that uh, another time. But the duties change a bit and validators gain a bit more responsibility after we've done sharding. But until then, it's the beacon nodes that do the validating and stuff. Gotcha. The beacon nodes that do the validating, as in they're the ones that are actually creating these blocks. and um, they're, they're the ones that are refusing to deal with anything that's invalid. So it's more mm. like a protocol. The validation comes from the protocol level of how the network right. works. And then the validators simply affirm, put their weight behind what the network has already deemed as valid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They vote on what they see. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I mean... If anything, I think this whole Twitter drama was very educational for me. You know what it propelled me to do? It propelled me to read up about a lot of other proof of stake blockchains. So there's always a silver lining, folks. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to move on now to the market side. And with all this Ethereum talk, I think we have to talk a little bit about Bitcoin. Because it's very hard not to notice the amount of news, the amount of headlines that's coming out of this announcement that El Salvador will be adopting Bitcoin as legal tender within its country. And let me tell you, this announcement came a week ago and every single day, I'm still seeing many new reactions and uh, commentaries around what this news really means. And the reason why I wanted to bring it up in this Ethereum podcast is because we've seen crypto market infrastructure develop for Bitcoin first, and then a few months or a few years later, Ethereum second. So for example, when the SEC, the United States uh, Securities and Exchange Commission said that Bitcoin wasn't a security in 2018, the following year in 2019, the same organization said, oh, and also Ether isn't a security either. We had bank grade Bitcoin backed loans approved in 2020 last year. 
2021, very recently, we've got the first Ether-backed loans through an FDIC-insured bank having been approved. You've seen Bitcoin ETFs approved in Canada for the first time. And then a few months later comes the Ethereum ETFs. This seems like a trend to me. I mean, Ben, tell me if you disagree, but isn't this a trend you've also noticed in the crypto markets too? Yeah, Bitcoin definitely has the meme value, right? I mean, it is the pioneer and uh, it's older. The name recognition is much higher. Now, so here's the secret. I, When people ask me what I do, I tell them I, I work in Bitcoin, even though I own zero Bitcoin and I've only ever done two Bitcoin transactions in my life because, you know, it's kind of more or less the right area, right? And they, they know what Bitcoin is. Yeah, and I can follow up talking about cryptocurrency in general. But that's an illustration that Bitcoin definitely has mindshare uh, and partly by virtue of just having been around longer and has been in the news more. I think this trend towards landing on Ethereum is true. Bitcoin is, is limited by design. I mean, it does one thing and often people feel they want to do more. So uh, I'm cool with that. Yeah, people say that I was being misleading. You telling people that you work in Bitcoin. I mean, that's misleading as heck. I feel like you should be blasted on Twitter for that. Um, I'm just joking. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree with you that Bitcoin holds a lot of mindshare. And when I, even my mom too, or if I'm talking to some friends, they say, what do you do? I, I say, you know, I report on crypto. And it's not immediate when I say crypto. Mm cryptocurrencies, usually I'll have to say Bitcoin and then their yep. ears perk up. So I do want to spend some time talking about the implications of this El Salvador announcement, which is a first for Bitcoin. And it's a first for all of crypto. But so likely, as we've talked about, it's going to have implications for Ethereum down the road. And for those of us who are very unfamiliar with this territory, let me just give you a 101 on legal tender. Legal tender means a form of money within a country that can be used to pay off public or private debt. So this announcement from El Salvador means Bitcoin will be recognized by law as a currency to pay taxes, pay for goods and services, and basically be a formally recognized form of money to the country's economy. And the news has got Bitcoiners over the moon, of course, but governments, financial institutions, intergovernmental organizations are pretty wary about this. IMF spokesperson Gary Rice said, quote, adoption of Bitcoin as legal tender raises a number of macroeconomic, financial, legal issues that require very careful analysis. And then a research note by JP Morgan published last Friday, June 11th, said, quote, the El Salvador government's pitch that it will generate short-term employment gains and investment seem far-fetched. It also raises several questions on the viability of implementation, which concerns range from regulatory hurdles to whether the challenge to the dollar status as a single legal tender in the country could be seen as straining relationships with the U.S. So lots of concerns. Ben, have you seen this, this kind of commentary? What kind of commentary are you seeing on the media about this announcement? There are definitely two sides, uh, aren't there? There's the kind of out-and-out celebration of this, and it is something extraordinary. I mean, it is brand new, and I don't think anyone would really have forecast this a few years ago. So that, that's on the one hand, and there is also quite a lot of FUD around it, as you mentioned, from, I think, the more uh, developed e economies. Uh, the governor of the Bank of England said a few weeks ago that Effectively, crypto assets, you won't call them cryptocurrencies, are valueless. You can lose, extremely dangerous, you can lose all your investment. Definitely wanted to downplay 
uh, them and yeah, the reason being that we're coming for his job, of course. You, you see that a lot in the developed economies and I think they are actually quite worried about the momentum that cryptocurrencies are gaining. And this is a small step. I mean, it's a little foothold in a relatively small economy that was dollarized anyway. But a bit of momentum behind it. I think um, there is something to worry about for the uh, monetary policy people. Yeah, I agree with you. More so than the actual policies and the actual infrastructure that's built out of this, which could be small and which might not have a huge lasting impact. I think the potential, the potential for this to impact so many other countries and really create, be one of the first tipping points for the de-dollarization of this entire global economy and reliance on banks and financial services to to do remittances. I think this announcement, regardless of all of its shortcomings and potential like pitfalls, it sends a message and it mm. sends a message that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies really could change the global financial system. Yeah, it's a good start. I, I do think, though, we'll come back in three years time and we'll find very little has changed in El Salvador. I think it's more of a kind of banner headline. And once the politicians and the practicalities and everything kind of gets going, it will probably fade away and fade from sight over time. But nonetheless, it is historic. Let's leave it there. Yeah, I like that. I like that. All right. Well, we're going to be wrapping up the show today by talking a little bit about the decentralized finance system built on Ethereum. And for the community segment today, I tried to gather audience questions about DeFi for you and I, Ben, to do this quick lightning round talk. Nobody responded. <laughs> Everyone already understands everything about DeFi, Christine. This is, <laughs> this is I clearly chose the wrong topic for the community segment. Next time I'm going to, I'm really, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick a very, very controversial topic and then post that on Twitter for questions. But basically what I had to do in lieu of all of our listeners not being as participatory as possible, thanks a lot, guys, <laughs> just joking, um, is I had to reach out to my colleagues. And on the research team, we have an intern who I asked, you know, specifically, is there a question about DeFi that you would like answered on the show? I asked our show producer, our lovely Michelle Musso, to also ask some questions. So we're going to do a lightning round of the questions that I got from my colleagues. The first one, Ben, maybe you can take this one. The first one is, what is the relationship between DeFi and blockchain? And why is most of the DeFi applications being built on the Ethereum blockchain versus other blockchains, such as Bitcoin or anything else? Great question. So the D in DeFi is decentralized. Uh, and that means no single party controls it. And this is the technology that, that blockchain brings to the world. So we talked about this earlier. And uh, the, the premise of a blockchain is nobody controls it. it, is it is decentralized. So it provides a great foundation for DeFi. And the, the point, again, as I said earlier, is not that it's decentralized. The point is permissionless. You don't have to ask anyone to be able to use DeFi. You can just do it. Um, you don't have to do KYC or any of that. There are no gatekeepers. And this is the technology that fundamentally blockchain provides is open access permissionlessly to the world. Yeah, that's the relationship between blockchain and DeFi. And why Ethereum? Just because Ethereum has the functionality. So first of all, Bitcoin can't do this. It just isn't functional enough. It doesn't have the right you can't write code to do smart contracts, to write exchanges and so forth on Bitcoin. 
in a decentralized way. Ethereum was designed to overcome that limitation. So when it started six, seven years ago, Ethereum added smart contract functionality, which is programmable money on top of kind of the Bitcoin-like paradigm. So that was the first. Other blockchains are around, so Binance Smart Chain and you know others are implementing DeFi primitives, basically cloning Ethereum to, to a large degree, but uh, able to provide this. Ethereum has the famous network effect. There are so many people already working in Ethereum. The assets are already in Ethereum. The value is already in Ethereum. So it's just a natural place for all of DeFi to, to congregate, you know, like, like the city of London or, the, you know, or Manhattan, right? All the banks are, are, are uh, congregating in one place. And, and it's like that with Ethereum. But can you imagine if Bitcoin did add smart contract functionality to their platform? Like similar to how Ethereum is doing this crazy radical change to transition from a proof of work to proof of stake consensus protocol. I mean, compared to that, adding functionality like smart contracts can't be that difficult of a feat. Although I don't think Bitcoin maximalists would really want to change up the <laughs> purpose of Bitcoin. I think that's the biggest sticking point. But I mean, hypothetically, if they were to, to add smart contract functionality, I, <laughs> that would be a big blow to Ethereum. Yeah, it's not going to happen. And they're more about stripping functionality out. They, they have a kind of Bitcoin script, which is able to do some sort of programmable actions to transactions, very limited. But you know, they've actually lowered the capability of that over the years. It's seen as a security issue. So uh, smart contracts and Bitcoin, not going to happen. No argument there. So one last question. This one's uh, comparatively a little bit tougher, but uh, the question is, how big of a priority is solving front-running as it happens on mm. decentralized exchanges? Is the solution likely to be something built on ETH 2.0, or will it come from a third party like Chainlink's fair sequencing efforts? And just a little bit of background on Chainlink's fair sequencing efforts. Chainlink is a decentralized application that does oracles, oracling services for Ethereum. And that means basically pulling real-world data from any other web two centralized server and connecting it, plugging it into Ethereum so that it can be used by decentralized applications. And frankly, I've heard a lot of commentary from researchers who are trying to understand minor extractable value MEV better. And they say that largely MEV is an issue, front running is an issue that will have to be taken up by decentralized applications like Chainlink, by the decentralized finance applications, MakerDAO themselves, Uniswap themselves not so much on the protocol level. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's very hard to solve at the protocol level and it may not be the right place to it. So Ethereum 2 doesn't change minor extractable value, maximal extractable value uh, at all. All the same issues exist. This is very, very active research topic, mind you. And I know that Gnosis is doing a lot of work in this. They have a sort of protocol which prevents front running. I came across an exchange, I think, called MistX, something like that, which claims that uh, they could submit transactions directly to the Flashbot. I may be wrong about this, but the point is that there are ways around it. If you wish to make transactions, there are services that will bypass the public mempool so people can't see your transactions and, and front run them. But the best place to solve this is in the DeFi app themselves, exactly as you say, uh, Christine, because they have control over the transaction ordering there. I think at the protocol level, if we look five years ahead, maybe this might go away because the base layer of Ethereum will only be processing roll-up administration transactions. 
all of the exchange activity and all the stuff where the value to be extracted exists will move to layer two and layer twos will have their own solutions. So I believe Arbitrum already has a solution to this. Uh, you sort of, uh, it has to execute transactions in the order that they are received by the protocol. It, it cannot reorder transactions. So uh, that kind of thing is going on as well. That's by way of saying there's a lot of work being done on this. <laughs> Right, right. And we'll definitely get into a little bit more about layer twos in a future episode. I think for now, the minor or maximal extractable value, that's really a tongue twister when I say that. It's annoying. I, I still call it minor extractable value because under proof of stake, the, the validators are really minors anyway. They do the same job. So I prefer minor extractable value. The traffic seems to be going in the other direction to maximal extractable value now. Who knows if it's going to start to be called validator extractable value. If yeah. that's the case, we've got a double whammy of, you know, validators in and of itself <laughs> causing confusion. And then another layer of validator extractable value causing confusion. We, we love to confuse. <laughs> Anyways, I do think that this is, like you said, a, a, an area of active research that we're going to have to keep diving into in the months to come. On that lovely note, I think we can wrap up the show. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Be sure to join us again next week for another weekly roundup of all your markets, tech, and community news related to the ongoing and active evolution of the Ethereum blockchain. If you have any questions, and we would love to hear your questions, you can connect with each of us on Twitter. Our handles are in today's show notes. Give us a shout out. We'd love to hear from you. Also, subscribe to our newsletters. I write one every week on ETH 2.0 development. You can find it at coindesk.com. Yes, I will probably be writing something on this validator terminology this week. Hint, hint. Ben also writes one called What's New in ETH2. He puts out a new issue bi-weekly and you can find it at ETH2.news or follow him on Twitter and he'll let you know when the next one is out. See you next week for Mapping Out ETH 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine, Kim, and Ben Edgington. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service, and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com.